Hi folks, welcome to this week's edition of the Finance Hour podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, the topic of this week's uh, podcast is Can You Bank On It? And we'll have a good look at the new tax which the government is imposing on the big banks. Uh, we have two fantastic interviewees, uh, Roger Montgomery of Montgomery Investment Management and Tim Farrelly. For those of you that listen to the podcast, uh, we've interviewed them before and they have different points of view, which is great. And the conversations go in a slightly different uh, path to what I expected. So listen carefully. Hope you enjoy the show. If you've got any feedback at all, please email me at rubenz, R-E-U-B-E-N-Z, at adaptwealth.com.au. Or if you want to find out a bit more about my firm, www.adaptwealth.com.au. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Finance Hour. Whether you're listening live on JR or indeed on our podcast, this is the show where we try and make sense of the world of personal finance and hopefully help you make better financial decisions. So today we have a couple of guests. Uh, we've had them on before uh, a few shows ago. We've got Tim Farrelly, who's the principal of Farrelly's, uh, and he uh, provides guidance to financial planners like myself as to how we should be deploying clients' money. Uh, particularly, he gives guidance at the asset allocation level. So that's really about how much money should we have in cash versus shares versus property, rather than getting really granular into which particular stocks that we own. And then we've got Roger Montgomery again. Roger Montgomery, the Chief Investment Officer at Montgomery Investment Management, uh, is a fund manager. And we had him on, uh, must have been on about episode four or five, uh, which was... Uh, about can you believe the numbers uh, and I suggest if anyone's interested go back and uh, and listen to both those interviews with Tim and Roger you'll get a good feel for their thoughts and I think it's going to be an interesting discussion today because I think they both think differently so I'm going to pose some of the same questions to them and see where we end up. So the sorts of things that we're going to ask today is firstly is it good policy and fair? Um, now Difficult to separate the politics from the economics on an issue like this. It really is a political decision. I think the two guests we talk about will talk mainly about the economics of it, but I probably will throw in a question about the politics as well. And my view is, from a political point of view, it was definitely a politically easy thing to do because banks have been public enemy number one and it's an easy way to get tax without uh, disenfranchising you know, too many voters. But I would argue that it's, uh, it is bad policy. Um, I think their justification of the fact that banks make enormous profits, I think that's a pretty weak justification because the, the absolute dollar value may be high, but that doesn't take into account uh, what's required to make that sort of money. It doesn't take into account, you know, how many staff they employ. It doesn't take into account the amount of costs which they have or the amount of capital which they need. So, you know, as an example, if I said to you that the government was spending, you know, a billion dollars on roads, right, you'd say that that was a, you know, seemed like a, an enormous crazy amount. But it's all relative. I mean, it's relative to what their budget is. It's relative to what they're achieving with that with that expenditure. So, I think it's really easy to, you know, pick on the banks and say, oh, that's a big, big dollar value of profits. But they're enormous economic entities, and they're they're employing huge amounts of staff and using a lot of shareholders' money. Um, so, 
you know, I think it was politically easy for them to do, but I don't think it really makes sense from a policy point of view to be picking on on one sector, particularly successful sector. Uh, the other things which we're going to ask for is who's going to end up paying for this? Right? Is the banks going to end up paying? Are they just going to be lower profits for shareholders like you and I? Uh, but what, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for people who are... Uh, you know, deposit funds in the bank. Are we going to get get lower interest rates? What does it mean to those of us who have borrowed money, which we are doing in record dollar amounts? Uh, we had a show a little while ago that talked about uh, how indebted the uh, the Australian people are, and it's growing and growing. So, what kind of effect is it going to have on us in terms of the interest rates that we pay or the other fees? Uh, and as I said, what kind of effect is it going to have? to the shareholders and we're all shareholders uh, in Australian banks whether we like it or not Uh, we've all got superannuation at least some of it and we've got uh, if it's invested in Australian shares there's bank stocks there and many people have got uh, bank stocks separately as well makes up about 20% of the Australian market so uh, how how is that going to affect us and I'm really looking forward to hearing from both Tim and Roger on their views on that so we're just going to take a quick break and then we'll be back uh, with Tim Farrelly. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. I'm Ruben Zelwa. We are talking today about whether you can bank on the banks. And with me, as I had had on the show before, is Tim Farrelly. Tim uh, provides guidance to financial planners like myself as to how we should be deploying clients' money. And I'm going to be interested to hear his views about the banks. Hi, Tim. How are you going? Good. Thanks, Ruben. Great to have you. Now, um, I started the show, I mean, I was talking a bit about the politics of the tax on the banks, but I think we're going to leave that, I might leave that for the very end. Uh, being an economist or forecaster, you're probably more interested in the economics or the business of it. Um, so, Tim, this uh, massive tax that's coming in, it's about $1.5 billion a year over the next four years. Uh, what does that mean for investors? Well, the way I look at it, it, and the early reports were that it was going to be something uh, around 6% of their profits. Now, it was 5 to 6% for most banks, and that is pre-tax profits. Yeah. Sounds like a lot. It does sound like a lot. Now, I think it's closer to 5 Yeah. But the, if you take that on an after-tax basis, it comes out to about 3.5%. Yeah, and that's on the assumption that the banks don't get to recover any of that. Right, because that is that that is the next question. But um, I'll let you continue. Oh, my sense is the banks will probably recover about half, mm. and so overall, uh, we should expect in the long term that to reduce bank earnings by about two percent. Okay. So on that basis, the bank shares should fall about two percent. Okay. And, you know, they've done more than that. They're sort of 8 to 10% down. So I, I look at that as being more than priced into the market. Uh, it's certainly not a concern going ahead. Mm, but they're 8 to 10% down. Um, but arguably that was from pretty high prices, wasn't it? Or do you think that they were reasonable value before this all I came think, in? I think they were pretty reasonable value beforehand. Um, mm. You know, they went from a yield of about a little over 7 seven and a half to now they're yielding eight, eight and a bit. You know, mm. it's, I, I think a yield of 8% in an environment when cash rates are one and a half percent is a fabulous deal for investors. Yeah, 
but they obviously still have headwinds as well and this is this is potentially adding on to the nervousness because you know the the residential property cycle seems to be at a peak um they haven't had a huge amount of bad debts they haven't lost money much on you know on developers going broke or on companies going broke and you know could that be around the corner as well certainly the developers is going to be the interesting piece um right now well most of the talk is their exposure to residential property loans as in to mums and dads yeah in reality that exposure is really small and you say well how can that be small it's, it's something like 70 percent of their lending book yeah. The reason it's small is a lot of those loans are people with a $500,000 million house with a loan of, say, $100,000 on it. Mm. And, you know, even in the event that the people with the borrowing cannot repay, there's a huge amount of security. So, so you're saying that their, I mean, their exposure is high, but you're saying that their, um, sorry, the absolute dollar figure is high, but their risk is low on that, you're saying? Absolutely. That's yeah. absolutely the right way to describe it. And you think of even all the people who bought a house, say, 12 months ago. Mm. Well, if we believe the numbers, and I think they're probably about right, in the last 12 months, property prices have gone up about 10%. Well, all of those people, even if they borrowed 100% of the value of the house, could see property prices fall by 10% before they're underwater. Right. The reality is most of them are putting down 5 or 10%. So for even the people who borrowed in the last year or so, housing prices can fall 15, 20% before the bank is really at risk at all. Mm. And that's a pretty small part of their book. People have, have had loans out for two, three, four years. One of the things they've found is falling interest rates. In the environment they've had falling interest rates, they've had more money to, to pay back their loan ahead of schedule. Mm. And so what we're starting out at LVR's loan valuation ratio is at maybe 90, 95%. In many cases, down 90, 85 and, of course, people who've had loans for many years, uh, the value of their loan is typically half the value of the house or less. Yeah. In fact, I think it's around 60% of bank loans across the board. The value of the loan is 60% or less than the value of the house. So, yeah. again, enormous falls in prices of houses you can get before you're really putting the banks at risk. And that's assuming, of course, that we do get big falls in housing prices. Mm. So yeah, I, I, that, yeah, I don't worry about that side of it mm. very much at all. What are you worried about? The piece that's more interesting is if we get this big, big huge building boom we've got going on at the moment, if that were to come uh, to an end with developers left holding a lot of properties, then the banks could be at risk to their loans to those developers. But even mm. then, you've got to put it in context. The bank's total loans to developers in each of the case of the four banks is less than last year's profits. Yeah. So if every one of those bank loans went bad and it all happened in one year, they're still making a profit now. It's a huge hit to their profit. Their profits mm. pretty much disappear. But their profit in the following year will be back up again. And their profit in the and, and it's not going to happen that mm. way. But I guess um, I guess when they lend to developers, they're still they've still got some land of security. It's not totally unsecured debt. Absolutely. I suppose it's absolutely. just the the end value of what those properties would get in like a fire sale, you know, is potentially a bit lot lower than what, you know, mum and dad's, you know, freestanding house um, and, might get. And typically what happens is they will lend about 50% of the value of the project. Mm. The remaining 
maybe 20% of that's the developer's margin. Yeah. 10% is what people put up for deposit, and the developers might put up 20%. Now, well, yeah. In the event the developer's margin turns out to be zero or negative, then it's a very different situation. Yeah, well, I'm going to be interested. We've got Roger Montgomery coming on after you, Tim. So I'm going to be very interested in his take. I've got a feeling it might be a touch different to yours. I'm pretty sure it's very different. (laughs) Okay, so look, but we talk about borrowings, right? So you're right, property, it's got, you know, when banks lend to, you know, investors or homeowners, they've got backed by security. But a lot of their lending to, you know, big companies is not backed by real real assets, is it? I mean, that, that's, yeah. you know, when, when you're, we... You're absolutely right. So when we saw some of those, um, some of the big, you know, companies fall over, um, what was the childcare one again called? I oh, um, ABC Learning. ABC Learning. You know, there was no security there. The company went up in smoke and the banks lost everything. I mean, how much exposure do they have there and what's the risk in that part of their loan book? That's the real risk in, the, in their loan book. Well, the, the risk to developers is real. Um, in the event we were to go into recession, then bank loan losses will go up. Mm. They'll go up and they'll have losses for the developers. They'll have certainly losses for the corporate lending book. And the question is really how big will the losses be? Mm. Now, in the GFC, uh, banks' profits fell by about a half. Yeah. So they had significant loan losses but not enough to put them into a loss situation for the overall year. Right. So in the event we had a recession where the impact on the banks was twice as bad as the GFC, you would see them make no profits for that year. Yeah. That, and then, and then it recovers over mm. time. Mm. You know, that does, uh, that has a real impact. And you, you'll see share prices fall in the event we go into a mm. recession like that. There's no question it will fall. My view of these ones is always a longer-term view. It's just the way mm. I look at things. And I look at it and say, well, if I were to be a buy and hold investor and I want to buy with, a, say, a five to ten year horizon, what would that mean for me if that were to happen? What it would mm. mean is I would get dividends of 8% this year, nothing, let's say we had a recession the following year, I'd get no dividends the following year because they don't make any money. Mm. I'd probably get half the dividends next year. They'd want to do a little bit of balance sheet repair. And then i go back to making 8% again. And so... Looking at on a 10-year view, my total dividend probably comes out at 6.5% or maybe 6 Yeah. And my share price probably goes sideways. But arguably, so, though, Tim, you know, you're taking an optimistic view. You're saying, okay, there's a one-off hit and then we go back to normal, right? Yes. What if there's a slow, ugly decline? Well, if it's a slow, ugly decline and it's a many-year decline... Um, then my guess is the size of the losses they'll make will be smaller and just stretched out. So instead of making no money next year or the year of the recession, yeah. they might have profits fall by 75% or 25 30% for four or five years. In that instance, my dividend fall from 8% down to about 5 Yeah. or 4 even. And over a sort of a 10-year period, I'll go 4 4 4 and then probably creeping back up to sevens and eights mm. uh, down the track. And overall, I get a return of maybe 5 or 6%. Okay, but are there other things, are there other sort of clouds on the horizon? I mean, for example, we're seeing in you know, in retail stocks and the like, you know, the potential disruption of Amazon coming in. Um, oh, you know, banks have had a, had a really strong 
position in the markets here. They've been arguably protected by the governments with a government guarantee. But you know, are they open for any any other kind of competition shocks rather than just you know economic downturn? There is a chance that someone will come in and try and disrupt their model and say, we're going to offer cheaper home loans than you. But frankly, yeah. that's going to be really, really difficult. Mm. You work it through, you know, the banks borrow money at something like 3% on average. So if you or I wanted to start up a new lending business, we would somehow have to persuade people to give us money at 3% so that we can lend it out at fours and fives. That's yeah. a really tough thing to do. <laughs> without, without a government behind you. Well, some of the some of the Middle Eastern uh, countries could do it, couldn't they? Perhaps but, you know, it, <laughs> they do that with their airlines. Yeah. So, so well, why couldn't yeah. they do it with their banks? Well, I, I think they, they could, but I would put that one down the lower end. Of the scale. But <laughs> the, the point you make is a good one. You know, the banks aren't absolutely uh, rock solid safe. You can't say, "Look, you can put your money here, and nothing ever wrong could happen to you." Things can happen, but I would say say that. No more so than any other business. In fact, probably less so than most other businesses. Mm. You know, you referred to the retailers. Well, we've seen how much trouble they've got into. You know, we, we, we've seen the mining companies with profits going up and down all over the place, just basically on what happens to commodity prices. We've seen, you know, business after business so go through good times and bad times. That's just the fundamental of business. That's why shares in the long term should you give you a higher return because they're riskier mm. and when they work out they work out really well and when they don't they're really bad and at why you need to diversify and you wouldn't want to put all your money into the banks you'd want to probably you'd work out how much of your portfolio are you prepared to lose if one business happens to go south mm. and i would say that's about the amount of money you'd want to have in the banks you know uh, you might say look I'm prepared to lose three or four percent of my entire portfolio if Commonwealth Bank, you know, really hits the skid. Yeah. And if that's the case, three or four percent of your portfolio in Commonwealth Bank is probably okay. Mm. Uh, you push that across the four banks, and you're talking fifteen, sixteen, maybe twenty percent or something of that nature. Yeah. You know, you do see from time to time, particularly people who've been investing for a long time and bought the banks very cheaply, they might have twenty, thirty, forty percent of their portfolio in banks, and I would say that is excessive. Not because I see there's any problem with the banks uh, over the rise. It's just it's too much for the unforeseen problems. Mm. Yeah. Now, the, the reality of the investing in companies is there are always much worse unforeseen problems mm. than the ones you foresee. Yeah. The ones that are out there and everyone's talking about is normally already factored into the market. Yeah. The things you really have to worry about is the stuff that no one's talking about that we don't know about yet. Right. So in the context of your saying of those, uh, you know, yeah, in a worst case scenario, really bad debts and housing fall. You, you don't even think that would be absolutely tragic. But in the context of that, this sort of you know six point two billion dollars tax, you're saying you know is really insignificant. Very small beer. Very yeah. small beer. Yeah. You know, I mean, in a recession, bank share price would probably fall by fifty percent. Yeah. Like, but most other stocks would as well. Yeah. And so there's nothing. Special about the banks in that respect, uh, but you say that you say that fairly flippantly. But I mean, if you're talking, you know, if it's a fifty percent fall in bank stock, you're talking about clients, people's super funds, you know, not falling by that amount, but falling by fifteen to twenty percent. I mean, surely that has enormous knock-ons, you know, to the rest of the economy if everyone's feeling poorer. If funnily enough, it doesn't seem to. I mean, just remember <laughs> back, think back to the GFC. You know, equities went down by fifty percent. There's something special about super, which I think is really good, 
which is it's the idea it's long-term money that no one can touch. And because they can't spend it tomorrow, the psyche of the Australian uh, consumer is almost like they just don't care what they've got in super until they hit retirement mm. because, you know, they can't spend it. So it doesn't seem to impact any of their spending decisions. It doesn't seem to impact, impact confidence to a huge extent. It, it, its impact seems to be much lower than you would think. And yeah. I think it is this idea that this is money put away you can't get hold of. Yeah, and but that, thought, that, that's also changing, though, Tim, because we've got a you know the baby boomer population you know retiring, and we've got lots more people now in that retirement drawdown phase of superannuation than maybe even than we had 10, 10 or 12 years ago. We have four of that, and they certainly, it, it, that is an impact. And, you know, that's one of the reasons, you know, I look at it and say, look, a 30 to 50% downturn in share prices is always around the corner. I have no sense of what's going to cause it today, but, you know, we've seen it happen so many times. Every 7, 10, 12 years, you get this big downturn in markets. It's now been almost eight or nine years since we've had one. Mm. We could have one again. It could be another five years. We, I don't know. But as a result of that, you've just got to make sure when you're putting money into equities, you sort of factor into the account that, yeah, these things could be 20, 30, 40, 50% lower in a year or two's time. Mm. And am I comfortable with that idea? We're not, just to say that it will be, but that's something that's likely to happen somewhere along the way. And even after that happens, I'm still getting a whole lot better returns than 1.5% out of a cash management mm. Mm. And that's the one I always bring it back to is saying, what return do I get out of this investment over the long term, even assuming we have a recession, and I compare it back to cash management trust and term deposit rates. And as we have such low interest rates at the moment, you don't require too much to get a better return. Yeah. But I, you, go back, yeah. you go back to the banks, I'm getting an 8% yield. Well, even in the event, you know, that's 6% above the cash rate for the next 10 years. Well, that's 60% extra money in the bank. Hmm. But that's not going to help you, you know. You're getting saying to someone you got six percent extra money in the bank when your share price has fallen by fifty percent. Um, that's going to pale into insignificance, really, isn't it? Well, if you add the two together, their dividends plus their capital, they'll have about the same as they would have in a cash management trust. Hmm. And you go well. So, is a cash management trust or a term deposit a good place to hide if you're nervous about the share market? And right now, I'd say it's not. There are times hmm. when it is. Hmm. But nonetheless, despite that, you wouldn't want to have 100% of your money invested in the share market if you felt that all of a sudden, if you came in one year and you sat down and looked at your portfolio and said, geez, you know, I'm only worth half of what I was a year ago. <laughs> I can't cope with that. Well, you don't want to have that much in the share market. So yeah. it's those two pieces. It's how much am I going to get if things go reasonably well uh, versus being in, in term deposits and cash. How much do I get if things go badly, which is another one to think about? And in the shorter term, in the short term, I think two or three years, if all of a sudden I'm fine, I'm worth, my shares have gone down by 30, 40, 50%, can I cope with that? Yeah. And, yep. and it's putting all that together where you say, well, actually, for me, this is the sort of level of risk I'm prepared to take. This is the amount of money I might want in shares, I might want to have something in property, the yep. risk need to be in term deposits and cash. Because even though I know I'm likely to get a, a much lower return out of them, I can't accept the consequences of, of a real you know, a, a real big bust. Yeah. All right, Tim, thanks very much. I'm grateful for your time. Uh, 
If you want to hear uh, someone talk a little differently to you, uh, stay on the line. I'll stay on the and, line. And uh, listen to. Actually, you can't stay on the line. I can only have one person on at a time. So you'll have to go to www.j-air.com.au. Unfortunately, we don't broadcast on the airwaves in Sydney, um, but the license is pending to do that. Thanks. Beautiful. Thanks a lot, Tim. Thanks, Ruben. Bye bye. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. We are now speaking with Roger Montgomery, uh, the Chief Investment Officer at Montgomery Investment Management, about the banks. Roger, can you bank on it? <laughs> That's a very broad question. Um, <laughs> well, we're talking, Roger, about uh, you know the topic initially was about the, the new taxes that have come in that yeah. kind of took everyone by surprise. $1.6 billion a year over the next four years. Yep. Um, you know, roughly six point two billion sounds like a big number over the next four years, but the question is, what does this mean for investors? Well, well, it does mean uh, it does mean lower returns, and if um, if the government's stated intention to monitor the emails sent to and from CEOs of the banks uh, is uh, is enforced, uh, then uh, it's likely that it's not the customers um, that will pay, um, but shareholders. That's an easier avenue. Um, ultimately, of course, uh, these businesses are in the business of making a profit, uh, so I'm not quite sure how a rise in the mortgage rates or a, a reduction in deposit rates um, could, by the government, be attributed to the tax mm. uh, as opposed to the, um, the company's intention to or desire to maximise its return to its shareholders, which, which is obviously its primary purpose. Yeah, well, I guess that comes down to um, what's their pricing power like. I mean, is that whether they absorb it or whether they can pass it on? And you know, arguably, the banks are in a pretty strong position, you know, in their in their market. Uh, yeah, well, let's, let's let's try and work through that. So, so there is a there is a view. Um, we saw Standard and Poor's recently. Um, re- reduce the ratings on the regional banks, um, primarily because of the um, the risk to the country from very high debt levels and um, and extended property prices. Mm. So, so there is a perception uh, internationally that there's some risk posed to the banks uh, from their exposure to residential property. Given that's the case, they they're the response of those international investors who are lenders to the banks. Um, is to raise uh, the price uh, for the Australian banks of borrowing money from them. Right. So that puts pressure on their net interest margin. Mm. That then requires them to turn to their cheaper source of funding, uh, which is deposits, yeah. uh, and be more competitive on those deposits. Mm. So that would counter um, that would that would counter any pressure on them, um, or any I guess any desire to reduce deposit rates as a result of this tax. Mm. Uh, it's a cheaper source of funding for they're them. They're going to still need it, yeah. And uh, they're going to have to compete because through deposits because their cost of international fund financing mm. is going to go up. Well, yes, but the question is can they increase interest rates on their on their loans? Because, you know, it's just really interesting how this coincided with a point where, you know, the government and APRA are putting pressure on the banks in terms of growth in their investment loans. So the way I see it, the cynical point of view is that the banks just took that as a uh, as a green light to go ahead and crank up, you know, their rates on investment loans and on interest only loans because it was they were politically able to do that because well, might, the government was giving them a free kick. Yeah, you might remember that you might remember that um, uh, that they're also required 
by APRA to limit uh, growth in um, in investment lending to 10%. In fact, mm. the most recent statement was substantially less than 10%. One way to do that, of course, is to increase rates. And when they first started increasing rates on investor loans and interest-only loans, um, they said, you know, this is not our fault. This is the regulator's fault. They're telling us to do this. Um, but if you wanted to reduce growth, you would only increase rates on new loans. Mm. Um, but, of course, they increased rates on the entire back book as well. So. Right. So all existing investors had to stomach higher rates as well. So, uh, so and they seem to right. get away with that. Well, well, why, that's what that's their job, isn't it? Yeah. To make money for their shareholders, right? So mm. they've been given, they've been given an environment, or they've created an environment, or the consumer has given them an environment where, uh, where they're able to do that. And 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 when I say the consumer has given them that environment, the the sort of entrenched indifference um, by consumers and the and the high cost of switching. Um, it's a, an inconvenience, to, to massive inconvenience to switch banks. Um, you know that, that that means people stay where they are, and uh, and uh, and they allow the banks to charge more. Well, I want to go back to now the investors um, in the banks, and obviously that includes all the super funds and mum and dad shareholders. Yeah. And often those mum and dad shareholders, you know, they they've been trained to feel like you know they rely on the dividends. And dividends are a good thing, and the banks have really provided that in spades over the years, and have actually provided a a rising dividend yield. Um, so they may feel, well, as long as those dividends are relatively safe, I'm not too fussed about um, about anything else because I'm going to hold these. I've held these stocks for a long time, and I'm going to hold them through the cycle. Um, and I'm getting my check in the bank, uh, well, not check direct deposit now every six months and it's reliable as clockwork you just have to remember that it's the marginal buyer or seller that determines the price of the securities for everyone else Mm. so that might be true but you only need a small proportion of those people to change their mind and that moves the price for everyone else much as the property property prices are not moved by everyone Mm. property prices are moved by the person who bought last weekend Mm. but if you've got a strong dividend yield underlying that won't there still be those you know those buyers queuing up to um you know to pick up the bank stocks as long as the difference is 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 high enough compared to cash if interest rates start going up mm. then you know the yield needs to go up to to uh, to match it uh, and that means that the price of the shares has to go down yeah and what uh, about otherwise the, the next yeah. buyer won't be willing to buy it right and what about the um i mean i think from discussions i've had it seems to me that the you know, in terms of the the potential risks in the economy, or even for the banks, you know, the this super tax is is fairly minor. What else do you see as the as the biggest risk uh, facing the banks, and should be should people be worried whose portfolios have crept up over the years to thirty to forty percent uh, bank stocks? So there's 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 three. Um, two of them are related, uh, and the first two. So so the first two are that the net interest margins come under pressure for the banks. Uh, they're forced, therefore, uh, to raise rates on mortgages, irrespective of the, the tax. Um, and, and by doing so, they kill the property boom. Yep. Um, the second is that uh, we, simply, uh, we simply have borrowed uh, enough. So as a society or as a country, you know, household debt and uh, consumer debt now are at at record highs and higher than, than higher than any higher than the levels of the previous two um, recession uh, depressions yeah. uh, in 
the late, I think it was the late 1800s and, and the 1920s, um, significantly higher levels. Um, and, and as a result, and that combined rather with, with uh, increasing supply of apartments just means that the ability for, you know, for, for more apartment purchasing at ever higher prices disappears. Um, you then get, you then get uh, in combination with the fact that the NAB and the AMP and others have blacklisted suburbs and, in, as we talked about earlier, increased, loan, increased rates on investment loans, increased deposits required on investment loans, uh, and um, and in some cases stopped lending on interest on an interest only basis. Um, that means there's no buyers for anyone who's pressured to sell. So you get an increase the supply of apartments that push, puts pressure on rents, which is already happening. Rents are in decline mm. in aggregate in Australia. So you get financial stress of some of those property owners. They've got no one to sell to because the buyers have been told by the banks they're not willing to lend to them, and so prices come down, and that just kills credit growth. So the mm. first, so the first, you know, I said that there were three. The first two issues relate to credit growth, um, and and that reduces profit growth for the banks. And then the 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 third issue is um, uh, not related to credit growth, but related to profitability. Uh, and that profitability um, is measured by return on equity. And the regulator is requiring the banks to have more equity to make sure that they're absolutely strong. Mm. Um, and unquestionably strong banks and the strongest in the world uh, and uh, and so that additional capital means that they simply can't um, they can't generate as high a level of profitability as before mm. if you had a bank account as, a, as an aside just as, as a scenario if you had a bank account that earned 20 percent and a bank account that earned two percent well obviously the bank account that earned 20 is more desirable and more valuable um, and it's the same with the banks. If their return on equity declines, yeah. they're less valuable as compared to you know as compared to other investment options. Yeah, it's interesting. Right. We were speaking. I was speaking to Tim Farrelly uh, a little earlier yeah. uh, about the property, and he actually made the point that the rise in the property market overall has, in a way, has given the banks a bit of a buffer because pe- because the growth in property prices have meant that you know, existing borrowers' loan to valuation ratios. Have decreased a lot, which gives them a buffer in case, you know, of default. Um, you know, there's plenty of equity in there for the banks to recover their debt. Yeah, that's true. But you don't get a performing loan, right? A loan's valuable to you to the extent that mm. um, you're getting a rate of return on that loan, and it crosses over at a point, obviously, where it becomes less valuable once you've paid down your equity by cert- your, your loan by a certain amount. Yeah. So, so, so loans are only profitable for for a period of time. And, and they suddenly stop being very profitable if people don't pay them back. Right, and but it's true that the bank, it's true that the bank can sell a property, uh, and if it's got increased equity. But if they're doing it on mass and it's a, you know, it's a systemic issue, then those property values will fall just as quickly mm. as they've risen. Mm. And what you're saying is it's not necessarily the bad debts, but it's just loss of earnings going forward. Correct. Unless, yeah. Unless and earnings re- growth. And the banks will have to draw on some of those profits. Uh, to provision for an increasing non-performing loan amount anyway because they boosted their profits over the last few years by mm. by drawing on those provisions for bad and doubtful debts because they were, the loans were performing so well and that boosted their profits. Now their provisioning for bad and doubtful debts is, is at a low point or a low ebb precisely at the point that 
you know, arguably the mar- property market's about to turn over. Yeah, yeah. We've already seen, just as an aside, we've already seen, a, for example, a 300% increase in the number of calls to the National Debt Helpline, mm. uh, and the majority of that increase has been from people with multiple mortgages. Yeah. Um, so that yeah. could be a leading indicator um, for what's to come for the banks. Well, Roger, we're running out of time, but I just want to ask you uh, one last question, and it's a political one. Yeah. Was this uh, this tax of $1.6 billion a year, was it good or bad policy? It's it's bad to the extent that it's it's populist, uh, yeah. and so it's not showing strong leadership. Uh, it's good to the extent that it tells investors we're now at the pro- top of the boom for bank profits, because every time the... Uh, every time the government has ever uh, launched a, a, you know, a super profits tax on an industry, it's been the end of the boom. Um, and yeah, well, in the, mine, in the case of the mining situation, it was exactly. the end of the boom and they couldn't collect the tax. Exactly. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, so it may be an indicator to the market again or to investors again that the, you know, the, the purple patch that they've enjoyed for such a long time is, is, is now coming to an end. All right, Roger, I'm grateful for your time. Uh, thanks very much and look forward to calling on you again uh, in the future. Really enjoy the Ruben. interview. Thanks again. Thanks again, Ruben. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye. That wraps up the Finance Hour for this week. Uh, welcome your feedback. Email me at rubenz at r-e-u-b-e-n-z at adaptwealth.com.au with any of your comments, good or bad, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. <laughs> 